Today, we're going to talk about back to school. Would you agree that education is probably one of the most important things in our society, let alone for our kids? Well, today we're going to talk about education in depth, and we're going to talk with, I believe, one of my heroes in education, and that's Kaylin Ford. A clear path forward requires looking back and learning. Good public policy requires human connection. It's a consideration of the facts, applying common sense, and innovation. It's urban. It's rural. It's real life. We all have something to contribute. We all have a responsibility to get informed, because there's a little piece of Canada in all of us, isn't there? Let's learn on this path together. This is Leaders on the Frontier. So my guest today is Kaylin Ford, and she is the founder of Canada's first classical school in our country, both that has campuses in Edmonton and Calgary. And we're going to talk about uh, all the issues related to education, and particularly with you as parents as our children head back to school. So welcome, Kaylin Ford. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for having me. So Kaylin, you've got uh, quite a background in terms of um, law, uh, human rights, uh, also in the political realm, and uh, of course, in education and history. And Kaylin, I'm also fascinated that as a parent, you decided to start up a school. Why did you start up um, Canada's first classical school? Uh, well, first, I should I should qualify that first um, tuition free classical school. There are, there are a small number of um, often parochial or private classical schools elsewhere in the country. So, but ours is the first um, sort of non sectarian or non denominational and public tuition free classical charter school um, in the country. So, um, just a, a little qualifier there. But there were several reasons why I wanted to undertake this. One is, as you mentioned, I'm a parent of young children. And as I was surveying the options for their education, um, I felt as a lot of parents do that I, I just couldn't entirely trust what they would have been receiving in their regular public schools. Um, and even a lot of private schools, while they may sometimes be a little bit behind the curve in adopting some of the worst pedagogical and, and philosophical trends, they're not necessarily impervious to them. Um, and so, uh, so part of it just came out of being a parent of young children and wanting to make sure that they received a good education. And, uh, part of it is I like living in a free society. Um, I like enjoying a society in which people can, um, sort of adjudicate moral disputes in a coherent way, um, where people care about what's true, where they possess the kind of character and the habits and the virtues that enable us to continue living in a free society. And education is the domain in which um, citizens are formed. And to put it a little more seriously, it's the domain in which souls are formed. Um, and I also care that um, I, I hope that people um, have the means to live good and meaningful lives, uh, wow. that they have an ability to connect with a tradition and sort of be part of the great conversation that spans history, and that they can also sort of look toward the transcendent and, and have the, the means of apprehending the divine, whatever that may be uh, for that in that you know, person's faith tradition or, or for them individually. Um, and I had another experience, I think, that impelled me to undertake this, which maybe we can get into, but that related to my ill-fated run for office. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a fascinating summary because you're really challenging us to think that education isn't just simply about the ABCs. It's it's profoundly about values. You even mention um, the spiritual realm, which is, 
you really don't hear very often within education circles, do you? No. And, you know, if I were to try to diagnose some of the problems afflicting the education system, um, one of them that I would identify is that education has been overtaken by a utilitarian impulse. And I should say there's two different utilitarian impulses. Mm-hmm. On the left, sort of starting with education reformers like John Dewey in the early 20th century, um, this was a utilitarianism that was aimed at transforming society. So education was no longer about uplifting and cultivating the individual child. Um, it was about using education as a vehicle for social transformation. Um, and then there's a- another kind of utilitarian impulse that sadly, I think some people on the right cleave to because they're because they don't like this ideological content in education. Mm-hmm. So they say, let's strip it down. Let's remove the normative content, the sort of values, mm-hmm. and let's just make it careerist. Let's provide people with the skills they need to be mm-hmm. effective in the workforce. And that's a very impoverished view of the human person. Um, mm-hmm. So one of the, the uh, a favorite aphorism of mine comes from Confucius, who said in four characters, he said, which means an educated person or a moral person is not a tool. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're not, education is not about making you narrowly useful so that you can serve some mm-hmm. specific function. Um, it is a good in itself. And this is also the, the understanding of what a liberal arts education means as opposed to what's called a servile education. Mm-hmm. Um, a servile education sounds pejorative. It's not necessarily pejorative, but um, it is in service of some other end. Right. So acquiring a skill so you can do something else. Whereas so this, is, this is fascinating because right off the top, you've, you've really summarized a profound understanding of what education is really all about. It's about the whole person. It's not just simply about getting a job or some ideological end or like, like how, to, how to build an ideal society, but it's profoundly about the whole person. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, um, and I think it's, it is a, it should be an emancipatory undertaking. So it should be about um, freeing a person but freedom in a true sense. And I think that's another sort of rabbit hole we could go down is um, what, what do we mean by freedom and what does that look like? And, and I think a lot of the the problems that are afflicting progressive education is that they have an inverted understanding of what freedom means, what it's Mm -hmm. for and how it's achieved. So we have genuine freedom for the individual. So if you had to reflect back on your own story, I don't know when it was exactly, was it 2000 or so 2002 when you decided, when was that seminal moment, in other words, when in your own mind and your heart, you said, look, I'm going to start a school. What, can you tell us more about that? <laughs> well, you say 2002. That's interesting. That was a long time ago, but that probably was the time that I first thought that I wanted to to get into education. And partly that's because of my own educational background and sort of struggles in the conventional uh, public schooling system. But I think the idea percolated for a long time. Um, I'd say around 2016, 17, I became very concerned with this question. And partly that's because I had spent a lot of my life um, confronting in various ways and trying to understand the nature of totalitarianism. Mm. Um, so my background was in, I studied um, 20th century history, a focus on, on Chinese history and the communist revolution mm-hmm. um, and other totalitarian systems and then international human rights law and comparative politics. And I was very troubled by this question of how do people allow their societies to descend into this kind of madness? 
mm-hmm. um, this kind of spiritual and intellectual madness and um, started noticing, I would say probably about 10 years ago now, that a lot of those things that I associated with totalitarianism, I was seeing more and more in our own society. And I'd say I started noticing it on college campuses, um, this uh, sort of aversion to truth or not treating truth as the criterion by which to evaluate arguments, but rather Mm -hmm. treating whether or not something was um, ideologically kosher, according to a new and emergent Mm -hmm. set of norms that people were trying to enforce. So I got very worried about that. And um, I was thinking about, well, what can we do to try to arrest that trend? How can we at least slow it down? And um, one of the answers is, well, in education, you can try to um, educate people so that they're firmly rooted in what's real, um, so that they approach reality with a sense of humility and gratitude rather than kind of resentment and hubris. and try to make sure that they actually know things and sort of have the criterion by which to assess whether something is right or wrong, just or unjust, true or false. Um, so, uh, so I'd say that that's, that's where a lot of the, the impetus started. Um, and that's also why I decided to run for office, hoping that um, if I could be in a position to shape the education system for more people, that that would be a more effective way to do it. Okay, so this is fascinating. So part of your studies, uh, like my own, was the study of totalitarian regimes, um, including Mao's China, where how many people died again for uh, the chairman's uh, desire to implement the new society? Well over 100 million. Yeah, I th- I'd say 80 to 100 million would be a reasonable estimate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you saw the monuments in China as well to, to just the incredible loss of life. And that's just the tip of the iceberg when you think of it. So you were studying these totalitarian regimes and you decided in some measure, look, I, uh, education is really critical. And, you, and, and you're saying that you saw somewhat similar things in our beloved country called Canada. Are you surely you can't be saying that we're like Mao's China? Well, no, of course not. And, um, you know, the the astute critics of totalitarianism from, for example, the former Soviet Union and elsewhere, mm-hmm. um, always observed that the proto-totalitarianism in the West is in some ways almost more pernicious because of its subtlety, because mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily manifest as, you know, a sort of the midnight knock at the door and you're hauled off to the gulag or something. Right. The overt tools of coercive control are not as much in evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, it is no less totalizing. And um, a lot of the symptoms of totalitarianism, I would say, well, one, a loss of a coherent moral vocabulary, um, a loss of transcendent standards by which to judge right and wrong and true and false. Um, This is one of the elements that uh, people like Joseph Pieper have identified, Eric Mm -hmm. Boglin. When you lose the idea that there is a transcendent source of being or a source of moral authority to which we are all subject, standard against which power can be judged. If you lose that, then all you have is power. Wow. And it's, it's just a force of wills. And, um, you know, the leader of a totalitarian system can then decide, uh, they decide what's true and what's false and what's just and unjust. Mm-hmm. And if you lose the vocabulary to critique that, you're kind of screwed. Wow. So, um, I mean, I can I can go on, but that's that's one of the main yeah. things that I think relates to education. But, but Kaylin, it's it's a profound insight because if you see that kind of view without those kinds of basic standards or uh, you, you, it has huge implications on how you view people. Then 
how you view children, doesn't it? You see them as tools to a larger end. Is that right? Well, absolutely. Uh, and that relates to what is the ultimate goal of so many totalitarian ideologies, which is, um, let me, I'll step back one step here and I'll, I'll invoke more Eric Vogelin because I, I think he's just extremely useful for understanding this way okay. of viewing the world. A classical view of the world, let's say a sort of classical philosophical view is that reality exists. Um, it's good. Mm -hmm. uh, it is governed by certain laws. We are part of that creation. So we're equally governed by these laws. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, nature imposes certain limitations on us. And our task is to try to apprehend what's true. Um, we can't apprehend it fully. We can never achieve total knowledge of reality, but it is nonetheless intelligible through human mm -hmm. reason and intuition. So we should try to apprehend what's true and what's good and what, what are these laws and thereby attune our souls to it. So try to live in harmony with reality, with, with nature. And the view of sort of a lot of ideological movements, including but not limited to totalitarian tending ideological movements, is to say that truth is not good. And um, the order of being is not something we should try to live in harmony with. It's wrong. It's corrupt. It needs to be overthrown and remade. And us, through our sort of knowledge, through our ability to try to control reality, through the application of sort of techne, we can bring it under our dominion and remake uh -huh. it better so that we can extricate suffering from the world. Uh -huh. So um, so I think this is, this is, I think, is a very useful litmus test. Do you believe reality is good? Is it something we should try to apprehend and venerate and, and align ourselves with? Or should we try through force of will to remake reality? And I think the progressive education reformers very much are in the camp that truth is not necessarily good. Um, and uh, it may not even exist as an objective fact. And we should just remake reality according to our kind of utopian designs so that everyone is equal and um, uh, and there's no more pain and no iniquity in the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So these are very profoundly different worldviews then that people maybe not be aware of. It's, it's hard to believe that this is almost like a an ideological war of worldviews in education. Is that a fair comment? <laughs> I, I think that's a fair comment. Um, mm -hmm. Absolutely. And lots of people who are influenced by that latter view that I identified, they don't necessarily know they are. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't think that they would necessarily say, yes, I hate reality and yeah. I'm in revolt against it. Mm -hmm. um, but they may have kind of unwittingly imbibed these assumptions mm -hmm. uh, throughout the course of their lives that, you know, that, yeah, we should mm -hmm. we should try to make the world better. Right. We should improve on these designs. So I did want to turn to the founding of the school because it, it's really kind of a really powerful action that you undertook. Um, so can you tell us more about what you mean by um, classical education. And we do want to uh, show a little bit of an overview uh, of the school as well. So what, what, why, why classical education? Well, it goes back to that distinction I was identifying earlier that um, throughout, for I think the last, let's say 2000, maybe 2,500 years, the classical education tradition that we recognize in the West sort of originates with the School of Athens from Socrates and Plato and Aristotle on down and was kind of refined and codified in the Middle Ages in Europe um, and uh, sort of identified with the seven uh, classical liberal arts, which are grammar, logic or dialectic, rhetoric, as well as uh, uh, 
basically sort of the maths and sciences. Um, so uh, arithmetic, uh, geometry, astronomy, and music. Uh, music being sort of the study of ratios and harmonies. So, um, but in the East, a similar tradition developed as well. And one of the commonalities between the classical education traditions is in their view of the cosmos and man's role in it. And so I, if I, I attempted once to distill what, what are these basic understandings about the role of man in, the, in relation to the cosmos? And it's as I described earlier. So, you know, I, I say imperfectly, my criteria would be truth exists. It is good. We are part of it. It is apprehensible, um, even if not fully graspable uh, through reason, through, um, through intuition, as sort of Aristotle talked about, that the first principles can only be intuited, but the rest can be inferred through reason. Um, and that we should try to live in accord with it, live harmoniously with it, that our societies are going to be more flourishing if they align with what is natural to us, um, if they align with natural laws, with principles of justice. Um, and, and that started to really change. The, I think the first beginnings of that started to change in kind of the late 19th century and then through the 20th century. And now we have an entirely different set of axioms that has taken hold that you know, denies that truth exists objectively or is real, denies that it's intelligible to us, um, or if it is real, it's, it can be changed and overcome by man because we are not part of this creation. Um, and, and that it's basically something to be viewed with some hostility and, and, um, and contempt. And so that's when, when I think about classical education, I actually think in terms of those principles, what is the basic anthropology? What are the kind of core metaphysical assumptions and, um, and what are the ends that we're driving toward? And um, for me, as the founder of a classical program, um, it's not a religious program, but that doesn't mean that we're disinterested in questions of mm -hmm. ultimate concern. And mm -hmm. so for me, I, I want students to be educated in a way that they're rooted in a tradition that they're able to, um, to sort of draw nourishment from the past and so that they can reach toward what is higher. And, um, so that they, they, they have an openness to the idea of transcendence and they're able to not, you know, they're not, they're people who are not going to be easily led because mm -hmm. they have the roots firmly planted in reality um, and are able to sort of apprehend an ultimate ultimate truth as well. So, um, yeah, I think that's is that, is that a reasonable no, summary. No, that's great, Kaylin. It's a great uh, summary. So on that note, let's look to the uh, clip about the uh, schools. We understand that our students are not just future workers, they're future friends, neighbors, spouses, parents, and citizens. They are bearers of divine souls, which thirst after knowledge of what is true, good, and enduring. Our mission is to help them grow in virtue and in wisdom so that they may live well and with purpose. Wow, what a lovely video. And you can see it uh, online, of course, at the website. Where would they find that, Kayla? Uh Well, you can find that at classicalacademy.ca. And you have campuses uh, where and, and how are things going? Right. So we opened our first school uh, this past uh, last August, August 2022, a small elementary school that you saw in that clip there with about 300 students. Um, and demand for our program has grown very substantially <laughs> through word of mouth. So uh, I think we currently have about 1,200 students hoping to enroll for next year in Calgary. Pardon me. You said you have 1,200 students. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, we can't enroll all of them, but that's that's our current enrollment demand in Calgary. Wow. Uh, so we're opening another campus that will be uh, kindergarten through grade eight, and we'll continue offering additional grades each year to, so that we eventually have a full K through 12 program. And we're also opening our first school in Edmonton as a K through seven uh, this coming August. So we'll have three campuses this year and about 900 students. And are you, wow, that's incredible. I, I think people would be shocked to realize that uh, in such a relative short period of time, you're at that kind of enrollment. So what what explains the demand here? That's, that's really amazing. Well, I think a lot of it is, um, as I said, this is largely driven by word of mouth. And one of the most common experiences that parents relay is that if you're a parent, you probably know the experience of your kids come home from school and you ask, what did you learn today? Mm-hmm. Um, and I always used to ask my kids and friends' kids, what are you learning in history? Because I love history. Mm-hmm. And um, the typical answer is nothing, or I don't know, or I don't remember. Right. And the almost universal experience that parents at our school have reported is their kids home, come home from school and are like bursting with information about, you know, like, ancient Assyria or old kingdom of Egypt mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. um, you know, the Knights of the middle ages there, or the, you know, the black death as my re- daughter recently did when she came home from school. Um, and, and this is, this is incredibly exciting to them. So I think from a parent perspective, something like that is so transformative and so mm-hmm. different from what they're accustomed to. Wow. Uh, and that's drawn a lot of parents to us. I, I think a lot of it though, is that many parents like me, didn't feel that they could trust what their children were learning in their regular schools. Hmm. I've heard from parents that um, that their kids are on laptops or Chromebooks or iPads as a default. That is the standard operating procedure in their classes is to be on screens. Hmm. I think parents are understandably very upset about that. I mean, I, I think it's um, almost tantamount to child abuse if you understand what this is doing to children's capacity to concentrate well, to reflect wait a sec Kaylin. i'm and i'm saying this a little bit tongue-in-cheek surely children need to know technology so are i mean i know that technology has infected the classroom top to bottom now you mean surely you're not against technology are you we're not entirely against technology. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it has a place. There's sometimes when technological aids can be useful to achieve educational mm-hmm. ends, but no, kids get enough screen time and they're not learning to be technology makers. Like they're not understanding programming by sort right. of scrolling mindlessly on a screen or playing games. That's mm-hmm. not enhancing any kind of useful literacy, even if you believe that that's a category that we should be concerned about. Mm-hmm. I'm much more concerned about um, whether children have a capacity to concentrate, to think deeply, to form their own thoughts, mm-hmm. to be still in their own souls, um, and that they're not just sort of purely reactive beings who rely on external stimuli uh, constantly to distract them from their own thoughts. Exactly. So you don't you don't have you don't allow uh, smartphones in the classroom, no. is that right? No. And you know, gosh, this is this is tragic because we had teachers coming even from other elementary schools. So kindergarten through grade six is elementary in Alberta. And even teachers from other elementary schools noted the difference at our school that during recess, they said, it's amazing. Kids here actually play with each other. Wow. (laughs) Well, because at their previous schools, even in elementary, at least Mm -hmm. the upper elementary kids would spend their recesses glued to screens. Isn't that And they're not... And so it's actually a kind of recovery of innocence that mm-hmm. oh, 
they, there's no there's no smartphones. Um, we're very serious about that. Right. I think one or two kids tried testing if we were serious and quickly learned that we were when we took their phones away for extended periods of time. Wow. Uh, and they never tried it again. But um, so the kids can actually play with each other, mm-hmm. which is beautiful. Isn't that great? You know, it reminds me of um, so many insights, but one of them was a, um, a quote, a great uh, tech leader. Um, when asked, do you allow your children to have smartphones? Uh, he said, no, absolutely not. I, I want them to think. And I think that was, I'm paraphrasing uh, the late uh, Stephen Jobs of all things. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, it's very true. And I, I'm sure most viewers feel this in themselves since the advent of smartphones, of, yeah. you know, Google, where we've grown accustomed to this kind of instant gratification. Mm-hmm. Um and it does erode your capacity to concentrate, to read a whole text, right? right? To just sit for four hours and mm-hmm. read a book. Well, um, and again, be present for each other as yeah. human beings and relate to each other is really a profound insight. How can you live the quote good life if you can't really relate to each other in the here and now? Yeah. Well, and and more importantly, and I'll bring this back to my statement about maintaining that openness to transcendence. I think there are a few core ways that human beings can can do that, can experience the divine, right? Mm-hmm. One of them is like you see the sort of the vault of heaven and the night stars, but we almost never get to do that anymore because we've surrounded ourselves with artificial light. Mm-hmm. Another is sort of experience of sublime beauty in other ways. And again, our modern world does not have that many. We mm-hmm. don't have great Gothic cathedrals or... Um, I think, you know, experiences of profound suffering and, and the, you know, the fact of mortality can focus our mind on these questions, but we have so effectively relegated mortality and suffering to the margins of our consciousness through Mm -hmm. both medical and kind of social technologies that make us not have to look at it. So what's left. And I think one of the few things that is left, one of the few areas where any of us, no matter how ugly our surroundings, no matter how comfortable our lives, we can still have a, a way of accessing the divine as long as we have silence and a capacity for sort of still um, sort of receptive, contemplative states of mind. Wow. And if you drown that out, then then you're lost. You're lost to this idea that there is something higher in the world. So um, to put it very seriously, I think that's why I think that that is important. This capacity for stillness, for quiet, receptive states of being. Wow, what a great insight. Kalen Ford, you're an outstanding leader in education. I want to thank you so much for this far-reaching conversation today. And thank you so much for your wisdom and your insight and your courage. And uh, we wish you every success. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free. Comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.